Hello, fellow soil lovers. This is Elaine Ingham, and you're listening to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome to the probiotic life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. If you haven't tuned in before, thank you very much for checking us out. And if you're a regular, thanks for the continued support. We always love hearing from you guys. Today, we've got a great interview with Dr. David Montgomery. Actually, I think almost every interview is a great interview, but that's because I'm stoked on this stuff. Nevertheless, David is a professor of geomorphology in the Department of Earth and Space Sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle. In this episode, David shares a little bit of his story and we delve into the details of building healthy soil and how it's connected to our own health. This is what really excites me. David does a great job of communicating the science um, and explaining these details. And I had a great time interviewing him. So once again, thank you everyone who supports us in some way, shape or form. We always love hearing from you and how you are living a probiotic life. Now let's get ready to explore the tapestry of life that I like to call the probiotic life. Without further ado, here is the interview with David Montgomery. Our guest today is a professor of geomorphology in the Department of Earth and Space Sciences at the University of Washington. His book, Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations, won the 2008 Washington State Book Award, and he also won the, or received a MacArthur Fellowship. He is a pro- prolific writer and musician. Welcome to the show, David Montgomery. Hey, well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, geomorphology, explain a bit about that before we really get into your story. Yeah, what's that? <laughs> um, you know, a geomorphologist is the kind of geologist who studies topography. So I study the, the, what creates the surface forms of the earth, what shapes hillsides, how rivers tear down mountains, how tectonics builds up mountains. And as part of that, I would study soil erosion and soil building, soil production under uh, natural ecosystems. And that's sort of how I got into looking at the role of, of farming as a coupled human landscape system. So you can kind of think of me as the kind of geologist that works on the here and now of geology, what's happening on the surface of the world that we live on and walk around on that shapes our daily lives in ways we barely even recognize sometimes, but also that is influenced by our actions 
whether it's clear cutting a steep slope and causing a landslide that helps to you know, degrade the salmon fisheries of the Northwest where I'm from, or whether it's the way that we farm and how that helps to set the template upon which civilizations rise and fall, as I wrote about in that dirt book. So you're looking at the here and now, but from a geological perspective. Yeah, exactly. So you know, I'm the kind of person who is sort of trained to think that 100 years is actually a pretty short unit of time, um, whereas to a politician, you know, that is absolutely forever because <laughs> beyond the next election. <laughs> um, right. And that's the, you know, the glasses of a geologist are a pretty good lens for looking at issues like sustainability, uh, how we're going to manage a planet with, you know, with, with eight to 10 billion people on it and keep not just feeding everybody, you know, in the near future, but how we're going to keep doing that over the long long run. Um, having that long-term perspective is actually a pretty useful lens for filtering that kind of a, a view through. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, you're at the University of Washington. How long have you been there for? I moved up here in 1991. I finished grad school at Berkeley, moved up to the Seattle area to teach at the University of Washington, and found that I really like the Pacific Northwest. It's a beautiful corner of the world. Um, you know, it's, it, it rivals Australia in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in fact, I actually grew up in Vancouver, BC, and uh, spent most of my teenage years in White Rock, which is just next to the border there. In fact, oh, yeah. White, White Rock is... is uh, Huge rock that you probably know a bit about, don't you? It's a big white rock. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the neat things about living in an area of the world that was shaped by glaciation is that glaciers have dropped big rocks in places around the Northwest that when you look at it as a geologist, you go, why is that here? Um, There's a great story in Europe about how big uh, stray rocks, erratics, as we call them, like that one, Mm. rocks that are out of place so that the underlying geology is different than what the rock is that's sitting on top of it. That played a big role in the recognition of the Ice Ages and geologic history in in 19th century Europe. So they used to be really controversial, and now they're just kind of uh, viewed as uh, interesting bits of geography. Right. Yeah. And... um that one, because it is a bit of a, an attraction, gets painted every year with white paint, which is a bit unfortunate. <laughs> you can't actually see the color of it underneath. I, I suppose it's white. Um, you know, it's probably a big piece of granite, but I will admit that I don't actually know. Right. So, so let's go back a little bit. How did you get interested in geology? Uh, well, you know, the real story is I started uh, – college wanting to be a biologist. I wanted to be a theoretical ecologist because I was really interested. I had a high school teacher who got me really interested in thinking about, you know, how does an old growth tree pump water from its roots 300 feet up into the air? It's an interesting physics problem mediated through biology. She totally turned me on to thinking about science, thinking about biology. And when I got to where I did my undergraduate degree, I found that everybody in the biology program, except for me and one, one woman, wanted to be medical doctors because they thought that was a way to make a a crap ton of money. Mm. Uh, And that wasn't really what I was looking to do in college. I wanted to learn about the world. I was really interested in in becoming a theoretical ecologist. I got kind of disillusioned uh, and I actually ended up dropping out of college and I moved to Australia. I lived in Queensland at that point for a year. Um, Had a wonderful time, really enjoyed my time in Australia. Uh, And then when I came back to college, uh, I ended up taking geology classes and really loving it because the people in those classes were there because they wanted to learn about the earth. We would, you know, we back in those days, you could bring beer on field trips and do all kinds of things you'd get in trouble for today. 
Um, and it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, people would help each other with their homework. Uh, they weren't, we weren't so much competing against each other as we were competing against our lack of knowledge and gradually got more and more into geology, uh, gravitated towards geomorphology. Cause that's really where the biological world and the geological world interface, you know, vegetation and even animals are a big point, uh, part of what influences soil erosion and the processes that shape landscapes, uh, particularly in regions that aren't glaciated because glaciers tend to erase everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, kept going in it. really loved it. Uh, worked in the private sector for uh, a few years, working on landslides in California um, and got into studying what, what controls where stream channels begin on the landscape for my PhD thesis. And that involved looking at erosion and hydrology and vegetation and even animals in terms of gullies uh, and just sort of carried on. And a few decades later, I'm a professor of geomorphology still in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm looking at all kinds of surface processes, as we call them, processes that shape Earth's surface. And one of the most widespread these days is farming. Hmm. That's um. That's it's interesting how you. It sounds like you have a real thirst for learning for for knowledge as opposed to the studies that you did just to to make it somewhere. You were there for the journey. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm very curious. <laughs> I like learning stuff, I and mean, it's one of the reasons I've been writing books in areas that are a little outside my formal academic training because it's a great way to learn a whole new field. Mm-hmm. So that, that dirt book you mentioned uh, looked at the way that soil erosion and, uh, shaped ancient civilizations. So I had to dip into archaeology and sort of look at how do you understand the rise and, and prosperity and then ultimately demise of ancient societies. Um, and then I wrote a book. Um, well, I actually wrote a book before that one on the environmental history of salmon in Europe and the Pacific Northwest and uh, sort of the whole uh, demise of salmon fisheries and how human activities contributed to that. And after the dirt book, I wrote a book about the history of science and religion that looked at um, how the story of Noah's flood shaped Christian theology over the over centuries and how um, theology shaped the early evolution of the geological sciences. And so how those two realms of, that we tend to think of as inherently in conflict, there's actually an awful lot of cross pollination in the early days of people studying the earth and trying to figure out how Noah's flood actually happened. Along the way, they managed to show that, well, there wasn't a global flood, there's never been a global flood. Um, and that caused a bit of a conundrum for in the world of Christian theology, where people were starting to reinterpret, well, what did the stories in Genesis actually mean? And there's been a lot of arguments since then, but it's a very interesting realm in terms of early thought and the early investigators that, that helped figure out what we uh, know today as modern uh, geology. And along the way, I learned things that, that how some of the ideas of young earth creationism, the idea that the world is just a few thousand years old, is actually one of the most recently evolved forms of Christian theology, um, which is a bit of a different twist on it. But then I wrote The Dirt with my wife, uh, who's a biologist. You know, what I wanted to be in college, I ended up um, marrying someone who had that discipline later. Uh, she's a, a biologist who's also a gardener, and we wrote a book together about how microbial life uh, influences the health of plants and of, and of people. Um, and then my most recent one that came out um, a few months back uh, was looking at how 
practices of farming practices that cultivate the beneficial microbial life in soil um, can actually help rebuild soil fertility remarkably fast and thereby improve the profitability of farms, lower their environmental footprint, and sequester a surprising amount of carbon back into our agricultural soils where it can do good by building on the fertility of the land uh, at the same time. So that's sort of the arc through my, my curiosity arc, if you, <laughs> if you will. Um, I've been very interested in learning things that connect to geology, but that aren't necessarily within the realm that we traditionally think of as that of the geologist. Very interesting. It sounds like geology is, uh, there's a lot of disciplines involved in that just in its own study, so it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to to go beyond that. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, if, if you want to study the surface forms of the earth, you've got to understand the, the underlying rocks. You've got to understand the climate system and how it delivers rain and snow and all the drivers that drive landscape change. You've got to understand uh, uh, the biology. And you also have to understand, of course, like chemistry and physics and math and all that kind of stuff. So it's a good it's a good platform for thinking interdisciplinarily and for synthesizing systems and how they work. Because when you study the Earth, you're studying a whole interconnected set of different systems. And when you, when you add people to the mix, it becomes even more complicated and interactive. Um, and you know, it's kind of somewhat ironically, when I started out studying in science, studying rocks, which are, uh, um, you know, you can think of as a simpler system than people because they just sit there and, you know, they, they, and people are so complex in what we do with our actions and our motivations. Um, but if you look at a lot of environmental issues, it's where that human dimension interfaces with the natural systems, whether geological or biological or both in the case of the soil, um, how those all interact really makes a difference to any kind of thinking about how long a civilization will last, how we might achieve a more sustainable future for humanity on the planet as a whole, and our sort of our great grand mission of environmental stewardship in terms of caring for the world so that future generations are going to inherit a place that's not only habitable, but where they can thrive and prosper. Mm-hmm. And, and it sounds, David, like you do uh, want to better humanity you're doing your part to to better humanity um maybe partly due to the fact that you're a geologist and you can see the arc of time but was there anything in your childhood growing up that really was like a, a point that really like a, a turning point or something that that was like a lesson that you learnt that, that really got you on this path well, you know, I think not so much a singular thing in terms of like an aha moment where I woke up and said, I want to be a geologist or, or something. But I, I think that a very um, formative thing was I spent a lot of time playing outside as a kid. Mm. You know, I was exposed to the natural world. I was playing in the dirt. My brother and I would go out and, you know, we'd crawl through the dirt and do all kinds of um, things out in the fields behind my parents' house in California or in the woods when we lived in Massachusetts before then. And I think sort of a healthy exposure to nature and natural systems can foster curiosity about the natural world in ways that really stuck with me through life. I mean, I, I wasn't learning about uh, you know geology as a kid, but my grand, my maternal grandmother was a rock hound, and you know so she would give us rocks for Christmas, and they were cool and they were neat. 
And there was a time when my brother wanted to be a paleontologist and all the kind of usual things that kids go through uh, in terms of interest in the natural world. But it really it really stuck with me. And I think a big part of that was living in California and spending a lot of time outdoors, hiking in the Sierra Nevada. It's a grand landscape. It's a, it's a beautiful, inspiring. I mean, it's what inspired John Muir back in the 19th century, the mm. landscapes of Sierra Nevada. You spend time hiking around there um, or on the coast of California. Uh, which is good for more than just surfing. It's an incredibly beautiful environment. Um, it, you know, the, building those kind of connections with nature uh, early in life really sticks with you. And 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 my wife had the same kind of experiences, but although she grew up in Colorado in a different environment, and we we didn't meet until she moved to California for graduate school. But um, I think she'd probably tell you much the same. Mm, right. It sounds like um, my experience and a lot of the other guests that we've had on, they had some sort of interaction with nature that really um, maybe not sparked their curiosity, but definitely um, nurtured it, grew it to a place where they wanted to take it further than just a hobby. Yeah. You know, the, the more you look at nature, the more you understand about nature, the more amazing how the connections that are in it, how complicated it is, you know, how, where we fit into the grand scheme of things. Uh, we're one of the more recently evolved life forms on this earth. Um, and you know, we have, we have a decent history in terms of geologic time, but it's nothing compared to like trees and grasses and plants and grazing animals. We're, we're kind of a newcomer. And in terms of the modern impact on the natural world, we're in the driver's seat. I mean, there's a reason that people are calling the modern age, the Anthropocene, the age of, of, of people, um, is that we are one of the biggest forces shaping this planet, and yet we're still learning how it works. We don't really have the blueprint for things like what makes a healthy, fertile soil. You know, what are all the organisms in that soil? Nobody gave us the blueprint, yet we've been remodeling the place like mad without really knowing what we're working on. Sort of, sort of like a uh, six-year-old driving a car, or maybe even a semi-trailer. Yeah, or trying to take it apart and thinking they can put it back together. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of things we've been doing on the planet that have resulted in sort of unanticipated consequences because we didn't fully appreciate the connections between things. Mm-hmm. And what we've done to the world's soils is a prime example of that. Mm-hmm. So, so let's get down into that. Um, you know, like you said, there's there's so much um, in nature biodiversity. We we don't understand all the interactions um, and the, the interactions between um, geology and biology and all those different things. Um, but I'd love to focus a little bit now on the what you wrote with your your wife and the hidden half of nature, the um, the micro- microbial. Uh, part of this so i'm i'm interested to hear your your side of the story and then Anne's side of the story but um <laughs> for, but coming from a, a, ge- a geologist's side you know um we're talking about uh how soil health impacts human health and with yeah. with um like dan kittridge talking about adding uh rock dust and and minerals to the soil and what happens in this. Can you explain a little bit what, uh, what the interaction is in the soil with the, with the geology? Yeah, sure. And, you know, and you'll have to have Anne back on to, to get her uh, side of things, but I'd like to think she'd tell you much the same story. <laughs> um, but, 
Yeah, our interest in understanding what was going on in the soil really was sparked by buying a house in North Seattle, where we live. And she wanted to make a garden. And when we pulled this sort of tangled mat of like lawn and roots off the side yard where it was that was going to become the garden, we found we basically had the mineral part of soil, but we didn't have much biology. There wasn't a single organism that we could see, no worms at all mm-hmm. living in that dirt that was underneath that lawn. And that started us on a, a sort of a an intellectual adventure, if you will, that we wrote about in The Hidden Half of Nature that um, was how we went about restoring fertility to our land. And so we started thinking about things like, well, what actually makes for fertile soil? And, and how do plants eat? You know, what is the diet of a plant? And if you think about soil through that lens and you think about what it takes to nourish a plant, um, they obviously get carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they get water from the soil and they mix, they merge the two together through photosynthesis to build the carbohydrate building blocks of their bodies to build simple sugars. And they'll get nitrogen through the assistance of uh, nitrogen fixing bacteria that live in their roots. Um, and we've known that since the 19th century. So there you've got how plants get their carbon, their oxygen, their hydrogen, their, their nitrogen, um, you know, how they, build the basic building blocks of their bodies. But if you look at what it takes to make a healthy plant, to grow a healthy plant, there's all kinds of micronutrients they need. They need copper, they need iron, they need zinc, they need even a little cadmium, they need uh, calcium, sulfur, all these other elements, which aren't on that list of four things they can get out of the atmosphere. Everything else comes out out of the rocks. So if you think about the basic problem of nourishing the the botanical world, A big part of that is breaking down rocks and getting mineral elements out of the rocks and into the biological world. And it turns out that a big part of that is done by microbes, by bacteria and fungi that basically help break down. And as we as geologists call it, they we weather rocks. If you just take a rock and you stick it out on the street corner somewhere. You can probably keep coming back for years and that rock will just sit there unless somebody moves it. It's not going to break down very fast. You take that same rock and you put it down in the soil where there's plants rooted in it. And those plants are putting out carbon. There's some carbon dioxide comes out, is respired by um, roots and by microorganisms around the plants. That carbon dioxide, when it mixes with water, makes carbonic acid. That's a great recipe for breaking down rocks. It's a weak acid. It takes a while, but geology is really patient. <laughs> and But if you put rocks in contact with soil and with microbial life, they break down and weather faster. So you can get those elements out and into the soil where plants can take them up, integrate them into their bodies. And once a plant dies, all those elements that are in the plant get returned to the soil. Whether, you know, when trees drop their leaves in the fall, they basically they vent some they vent some nitrogen they um, but they retain most of the mineral elements in their leaves drop them on the ground where those leaves rot and they get can broken down by worms and you know chewers and chompers and organisms in the soil that eat leaves and it gets broken down all the way down to the scale at which microbes then eat those remains and process them and then slightly larger organisms and I'm sure Elaine Ingham talked to you a bit about this stuff in terms of the soil food web those larger organisms will eat those nutrient rich bacteria and fungi and recycle them into what Ann and I like to call micro manure you know the the, the poop of, of, of nematodes and microarthropods that stuff is fertilizer you know and and they basically poop it out in the soil so you can think of them as little livestock 
that aren't running around on top of the ground fertilizing the land with their manure. They're living inside the soil, fertilizing it from the inside out. Uh, and that recycling, because that, 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 my, that microbial manure is rich with soluble things that plants can take back up to nourish their green bodies. And that cycling of that cycle of you know growing a plant and then it dies and decays and microbes turn you know recycle those nutrients back into biological circulation that happens a whole lot faster than the original mining of those elements from the rocks that form the rocky core of the earth in the first place so you can think of soil as the skin of the earth that is a grand recycling system that takes dead stuff and turns it back into the raw materials that can help grow new life if mm-hmm. you know, if stuff never, if if dead things never decayed, we'd be buried in dead things. Um, there's this grand recycling engine. It turns out to, that nature drives, and it turns out to be almost all, um, you know, it's microbially fueled. And what do microbes eat? They eat organic matter. And so when you look at the fertility of a soil, you can correlate it with how much organic matter is in it, and that correlates with how much carbon's in the soil. Um, and now I've sort of forgotten what your original question was. <laughs> That's all right. We, we went on a bit of trail and I got a lot of other questions from that. But um, I guess w- w- the distinction is that's what makes our planet different than any other planet that we know of so far. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you, you look at like compare Earth and Mars and there's three things that make Earth habitable. First, we've got water. We've got a lot of water at the surface. There's a little bit of water on the surface of Mars, not much anymore. Um, we have an atmosphere that we can breathe, you know, and that, that we can thank microbes for as well. Our oxygen rich atmosphere, uh, early in the history of the earth, this planet was not habitable by organisms like us until microbes reconditioned it and created an oxygen rich atmosphere for us or well, not for us. They did it for their own reasons, but we took advantage of it later in, in evolutionary history. And the third piece that makes planet habitable is we have soil. You know, we've got that living interface between the geological interior of the planet and the, the biological world that, that thrives at its surface and, you know, and sometimes at depth and up in the atmosphere and all the places you can find organisms. But soil is, as far as we know, unique to this planet so far. You know, if we discover life on other planets, then there's probably other soils in, this, in the universe. Um, but to date, this is the only one that we know of that has it. Mars has broken up rocks at its surface, but it's lacking the biology as far as we know. I mean, this would probably be blasphemy to a lot of scientists, but I'd be interested to take a handful of compost and put it on Mars and see what happens. Oh, I would too. I think it would be interesting. I think it would be very interesting. Um, If you look at, uh, you know, I mean, the movie The Martian was sort of like a great invitation to doing thought experiments Mm -hmm. like that. Um, but if you look at the basic chemical composition of the regolith or the surface materials, or call it soil if you want on Mars, um, it's like battery acid. I mean, it's really not very hospitable. Mm. So uh, you might have to add an awful lot of compost <laughs> to make that uh, arable. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to ask you about the the, actu- the minerals as well in the soil because, um, you know, Elaine Ingham talked about transforming a place that was pretty much just sand, which is similar to Western Australia, um, mm-hmm. and, and adding biology and, and bringing up all of the min- minerals, making them bioavailable. Um, yeah. and in contrast to um, something that uh, people like uh, Dan Kittridge or Steve Solomon talk about of actually adding minerals 
Um, and I'd like to get your sort of take on that because I think, you know, there's so much in between soil health and human health. Um, and yeah. we haven't really talked about the, the minerals and, and how that actually works. So can you share a little bit about, um, yeah, like either adding minerals, like you say, uh, yeah. yeah. I, can, I can talk around that stuff. The, you know, the, the two places in the world where you see really, that I am familiar with uh, personally, where you see really big differences in the, the plants that are growing on it based on the rocks that are underneath are in, in California, there's some, there's a, a, a rock type known as serpentine. That's a very, uh, 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 like iron and magnesium rich rock that it's, it's formed deep within the earth it has a very different chemistry than most surface rocks. Um, and you find completely different plant communities growing on the serpentine soils. So it's, you know, there's some soils where the availability of different mineral elements greatly impacts the botanical world, even with microbial help to unlock all those minerals from the soil, the way that Elaine talks about. Uh, and Elaine's absolutely right in terms of uh, fungi in particular, often with bacterial assistance, are really good at unlocking mineral elements that are tied up in the rock particles in the soil and bringing them into the biological world. And they can be surprisingly sophisticated and um, specific in terms of what minerals they're mining out of those soil particles to get into the biological world. And they trade them to plants in exchange for sugars the plants push out of their roots, all stuff that I'm sure Elaine talked a lot about. Um, the other place that I've been familiar with is in the Amazon. There's some areas of um, the uplands in the, you have the sort of the lowland Amazon rainforest, and there's some pieces of topography that stick up above the surrounding terrain that are actually really ancient landscapes where the surrounding terrain is eroded down lower than that surface. It's kind of the surface that's not all that different than the one the dinosaurs would have walked around, you know, a hundred million years ago. Um, that stuff is flat. It's been in the tropics. It's had a lot of rainfall. It hasn't eroded much, but it's weathered a lot. All the nutrients are leached out of the superficial soils. They're really iron rich and aluminum rich. There's not much else left. Um, those places you can just map from a helicopter because the, the veggie, the jungle is totally different mm -hmm. where the soil has different minerals in it. So we know that the, the availability of minerals will influence the growth of, of plants when you use extreme examples like that. But by the same token, when you look at most minerals around the most soils around the world, excuse me, um, they have the basic set of minerals that are required for plant growth. But they're often locked up in the mineral part. They're not necessarily readily available and soluble in the soil or a plant can suck it up through its roots like a straw. Um, and that's why that's one of the reasons I think why plants evolved the, the the pattern of pushing you know sugars and proteins and fats out of their roots and into the soil to feed and recruit the microbes that can help unlock all those other elements that the plants need to grow healthy, thriving bodies and to build themselves. Um, so back to the question of whether to add mineral nutrients or not to the soil. I mean, in, in, in a way, both Dan and Elaine are both right. <laughs> um, you can manipulate the mineral content of the soil by either growing the biology that if those mineral elements are in the rocks that you have there that formed your soil, that biology can help make that stuff bioavailable and get it into the biological circulation to start entering that, that wheel of life, the dance of death and regrowth and decay that um, is, is spinning the, the nutrient flywheel that um, in soils. Um, but if you have a soil that's lacking particular micronutrients, you can add them. 
Now, it may not always be energetically efficient to go find them, mine them, transport them to your field and add them. Um, but if you have you know, rocks that have the mineral elements that uh, a soil might be missing and they're handy, well, you can add that. Mm-hmm. So, so both, there are two different ways to think about it. That The way I look at it is that we'd be better off around the world if we returned a lot more of the biology to our, our farmland soils like Elaine's talking about. And there's certain places in the world that could really benefit from um, the introduction of mineral particles or rock particles that have micronutrients that have either been depleted in that particular soil or that were never there because the rocks that soils derive from simply didn't have them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's you know, context dependent, as to, in my view, as to which might be the most wise. But when you just look at a global context, the idea of bringing soil back to life, the subtitle of my most recent book, Growing a Revolution, you know, that's an intentional pun. We need to bring the biology back the way that Elaine's talking about on a global scale. Mm-hmm. Because it is is uh, more viable on broad acre landscape as opposed to putting – I would love to get my hands on some of the glacial tilth that's in, in, in your area of the world and put it in, in where we are here in Perth, Western Australia. <laughs> Yeah, and then get the mic and then get microbes to chew it up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So we got we have the minerals and we have the um, the microbes getting the minerals, and um, I've heard you speak about the the similarity between a plant and a human in terms of uh, intaking nutrients and and those minerals passing through by by. Um, the microbes in there. Can you explain to us a little bit about how that works? Yeah. When, when you look at uh, the root system of a plant, this, this, the parallel between the root system of a plant and the human gut is one of the things that we wrote at length about in the hidden half of nature, sort of laid out that analogy and tried to reveal it. It came as a real, uh, that was an aha moment. We were talking about aha moments in childhood earlier. Well, we actually, Ann and I had an aha moment while we were writing the hidden half of nature. And that's when we realized that the root system of a plant and the workings of the human gut are kind of the same system inside out. And we realized that in terms of the relationship of the microbial life, the microbiome in our gut and the microbiome of a plant that lives around its root system, um, that the way that they facilitate nutrient transfer and sort of the provisioning and acquisition of nutrients and getting them across the border into the host organism, um, the way that chemical signaling goes on between the microbes and the host organism, and the way that affects both the plant defense system and our own immune system as foundational to the effective working of that, those defensive systems, you know, when you realize the, the, the parallels between the way that microbial ecology tees up and facilitates those three things, nutrient acquisition, chemical signaling that's important for plant response or human response, and the defense systems of plants in our immune system, the role of microbial organisms in promoting those interchanges um, and thereby promoting the health of the host organism you just go right down the list and check it off. They are completely parallel in what's happening in the human gut and in the root system. So what's happening in the root system is that the plants are pushing out these exudates into the soil. They're basically pushing out food into the soil, recruiting microbes, uh, bacteria and fungi for the most part that break that, that consume that food. And like any organism that consumes something, they metabolize it. And that means they're changing it into another form. And then they excrete their waste products. 
What's happening around the root system of plants are those microbes are excreting waste products that help the that benefit the health of the plant. They're producing things like uh, they're eating those exudates, and they're producing things like plant growth promoting hormones. And when you think about that, a bacterium producing a growth hormone for a plant is kind of weird. You know, you've got what on earth? Why would the bacteria be producing something to promote the growth of an organism in a completely different kingdom of life? Mm. Well, they're doing it because the plant's feeding the organism. It's a symbiosis. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. And there's all kinds of chemical exchanges between the life and the root system of a plant and that plant and plants and crops as well, in particular, um, that benefit the health and growth of that organism. Um, you look at what's happening in the human gut. And it turns out, I mean, we, and I never imagined we'd be writing about the human gut when we started writing The Hidden Half of Nature. But when we recognize the parallels between what's going on in the gut and going on the roots on the plant, we're like, oh, that's the story here. It's about the way that, that microbial ecosystems promote the health of the host, their host organisms. And in the gut, part of how that works is that uh, in, if you think about the architecture of your digestive system, you have your stomach, you have your small intestine, and then you have what we used to call the large intestine or your colon at the bottom of that system. And most of your own microbiome of all the microbes that live within you live within the gut. Most of your immune system is wrapped around the outside of the gut. What separates the two? A, a layer of cells, your gut lining, that's one cell thick. And you can't even see your cells, right? I mean, that's really thin. Um, and there's a lot of communication that goes on across that sort of border between the inside of you and outside of you, with apologies to George Harrison. Um, the, and the, what will happen is that the, there's these cells called dendritic cells that kind of look like little octopi that are in your immune system, living in, on the, just on the outside of your gut lining, inside of you. And they will stick an appendage that looks like a periscope through the cells that line your gut. And they will reach into your, to your colon, uh, to either the mucus lining your colon or to the interior of it, and grab samples of things. And they bring those samples back into, you might need little tiny samples, bring those back into you know, the heart of your immune system. And they share them with cells known as T cells. And those T cells get activated by exposure to particular samples that the dendritic cells bring back. And those samples are called antigen. You may have heard that word in terms of immunology and so forth. Um, that, and it's key to allergies and things like that. Um, but that, that antigen will can activate very specific T cells because those T cells are sort of, they have receptors on them that only merge, that only activate Get act, they only get activated when they're exposed to the right antigen. There's, there's millions of different kinds of T-cells. Um, but those T-cells will either promote inflammation or quell inflammation, depending on the antigen that those dendritic cells are bringing and sharing with them. And what that means is that depending on what microbes are living in your gut, it's either telling your immune system, hey, fire up inflammation, or hey, stand down, quell inflammation. And inflammation is a very important process in terms of protecting us from invaders. If you get a pathogen that gets into your body, you want inflammation to kick in because that's essentially your immune system sending killer cells to go attack the, the intruders. Now, I don't know if you've ever been involved in a, in a home remodel, but those who have know that something always goes wrong. Mm -hmm. And you can think of inflammation as 
the process of you know remodeling in your body. Something goes wrong, and you like you send your inflammation to go to go fix it. What you don't want, you wouldn't want like your remodeling crew to move in and live with you for twenty years because they'd be breaking. <laughs> yeah, and so chronic inflammation is a state you don't want to have. It's bad for our health. And if you look at the the big public health challenges of the 21st century in the developed world, a lot of it boils down not to providing enough calories to keep our bodies alive, but we and not pests and pathogens. Now that we have antibiotics and cleaner drinking water supplies and so forth, the so-called chronic diseases, things like diabetes, asthma, um, MS, Crohn's disease, leaky gut syndrome. Those things are the things that are really, really big public health challenges in the developed world now, and a lot of them are related to inflammatory conditions, autoimmune conditions, and and um, um, and chronic inflammation. When you think about the microbiome in your gut as what part of the intelligence arm of your immune system that's either telling it to fire up inflammation or damp down the inflammation, stop it. Um, the importance of what's in your, what you're eating and what makes it into your colon and feeds the organisms that live there becomes central to thinking about how your immune system is either teed up to repel invaders or in an all frenzied home wrecking remodeling binge of chronic inflammation. Uh, so you want the microbes in your gut that tell your immune system to stand down and stop inflammation unless there's something actually going wrong. Um, you don't want chronic inflammation. And when you think about the microbiome that way as something that's helping to tee up your personal defense system, maintaining the physical integrity of your gut lining as well, um, because your gut wall, your gut lining, that one cell thick layer that forms your gut lining is fed by microbial metabolites in your gut. It's fed by butyrate, the short chain fatty acid that's produced by microbes living in your gut. Most of the other cells in your body are fed by your blood. That's after all your blood's one of your blood's main roles, deliver oxygen and other stuff, food. Um, but your colon lining is different. And so what happens if you're not eating food that microbes will turn into butyrate? Your colon lining essentially starts to shrivel. Those one cell thick layer lose the cells lose contact and that open with each other and that opens up what you know basically leaky gut syndrome is what happens when you, learn, you lose the turgor, the, the sort of rigidness of those cells, and things can slip through that you don't want actually getting into you. And that causes inflammation and can cause bad conditions. Um, so what is it that micro that makes it down to your colon to feed your microbiota? It's fiber. It's all that fiber that your doctor tells you to eat. I was told for years by my doctor, you, gotta, you should be eating more fiber, Dave. And I was like, yeah, right, okay, sure, I will. You know, yeah, what does that mean? I never knew why. Once I understood that the reason you want a fiber-rich diet, which is not to say only eat cardboard, right? I mean, it's, it's like <laughs> eat other stuff as well. But you want to have enough fiber in your diet such so that enough is getting down through your stomach, through your small intestine to land in your colon where your microbiota can consume it. Because the stuff that makes it through your stomach and small intestine is the stuff we lack the enzymes to, to, dissolve, to dissolve and absorb into our bodies ourselves. It's that fiber, complex carbohydrates, otherwise known as plant food or plant food. You know, the bodies of plants are really hard to digest with our own genetics. We rely on our microbiome to digest that for us. And the place it happens is the colon. It's basically a fermentation chamber where all that stuff that makes it down there ferments 
Microbes eat it, they change it into metabolites, including butyrate to nourish your colon lining. Um, but there's something like 30 to 40% of the compounds that are circulating in our blood at any one time are made by microbes in our colon. And if they don't have the raw materials to consume to make the right metabolites, we won't have those uh, medicinally beneficial compounds flowing through our bodies. So if you have a very fiber-poor diet, where you're eating mostly simple sugars and proteins and fats that all get absorbed in your small intestine, you're basically starving your microbiome, which means they're not going to be producing those compounds that actually benefit our health. Um, so that's where some of the connections and the parallels lie between soil health and plant health, because if you have a plant system with a healthy microbiome and an organic matter-rich soil that plant will be putting out exudates. Those microbes will be helping to get all the micronutrients that the plant needs to grow. They'll be producing metabolites that the plant needs for health and defense. Same kind of things are happening in your colon. Um, and when we realized those parallels, we were like, oh, that's the structure of the book because nobody ever taught us this stuff. We had to sort of go out and learn it on our own. But once you see those parallels, you start going, oh, it really does matter what we eat in terms of our health. Uh, and it really does matter how we treat the soil in terms of the health of our crops. Mm. And then you can take one step further and look at, wow, what does that mean for how does how we grow our crops mean for how nutritionally rich those crops are and how that translates into our own health? And Ann and I are working on a new book now that um, is provisionally called Harvesting Health. Who knows whether that will be the title by the time we're done with it. Um, but we're looking at how to connect soil health to human health, the, the stuff that you were expressed a lot of interest in it at the start and there's we're trying to dig up the data that people have on how directly can you connect those things it's a complex thing to go from the health mm -hmm. to the health of people but if you break it down into the individual steps along the way it makes sense to argue that there are strong connections particularly in terms of what we might call preventative medicine or ways to ensure your optimal health um, such that when a pest or pathogen comes your way, your defenses are in the best condition possible for, try, for, um, for trying to defeat it. It's very interesting to, to hear the different uh, parts of the connection because, um, you know, we talked to uh, Dr. Embriette Hyde. She was part of the Human Gut Project. And there mm -hmm. are still things that we, we – there's missing links in there. I mean, it's, it's a logical connection to go from, yep. oh, yeah, of course, uh, soil health equals plant health equals human health. But there's actually bits in there missing. And, um, you know, for me, that's one of the reasons with the probiotic life, I think there's a, actually a lot to talk about. In fact, you could do a whole podcast <laughs> – on, on that so um, oh, yeah. so so but then yeah. it, it comes back to what, what I've been researching is the prebiotics because you know there is a lot of focus on on probiotics but what you've been talking about is what actually makes it down into the colon and um, when we had Graham Sait on here who was talking about a yacon which is like a, a tuber I believe um, and that's a really good source of in, I think inulin and fructo oligosaccharides which are the things that make it down into your colon. Yep, prebiotics. Yeah. Which, which would be similar to what you guys talk about with, you know, building the compost. You're actually putting, putting stuff in there. It's totally parallel. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very parallel. And if you think about, um, you know, if you have a microbial ecosystem, if you think about your gut as an ecosystem, 
And you know, some of us may be a little uncomfortable thinking that way, but that's really what it is. It's 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 an ecosystem where you've got all these organisms interacting. And if you look at the kind of ecosystems we're accustomed to thinking about, you know, what's important for the organisms living in it? Food and shelter. Um, and if you look at and a place to reproduce, and if you look at your colon as an ecosystem, well, your microbiome is trapped there. So they have shelter. They're in you. <laughs> what happens to you happens to them. But what they eat is what you eat. And so you can manipulate them by changing your diet for better or for worse. And so you have, uh, in terms of feeding them, you're really talking prebiotics. Yes, those are the, the, the raw materials that they need to consume to support them. And depending on what you eat, you'll promote different species of, of organisms in your colon because there's, there's, you know, there's something that will digest anything, right? Uh, whatever you eat, you're feeding the things that can break that down mm-hmm. um, for better or for worse. And if you think in terms of how that matches on to prebiotics, you can think, I'm sorry, probiotics, you can think of probiotics people are consuming or adding to plants with the idea of you have to add the organisms to have them there. So if they're, if they're not there, you can inoculate something with the, with the probiotic. But if you eat probiotics, but you're not eating a diet that has the prebiotics that it takes to feed them, what are you doing? You know, you're not, you know, you could like be trying to inoculate them, but you're not giving them the, the habitat and the food that they need to actually be successful. So you can think of the, the interplay between them, like say you take a, a big dose of antibiotics because you had a life-threatening infection or something. It could be really wise to eat probiotics to, to try and reseed your microbial population. But if you don't, if you're not eating a fiber-rich diet, they might have a harder time uh, reestablishing or catching on or something else. Um, might take over mm-hmm. yeah and, and that same kind of look at uh, the dynamics of the ecosystem of the colon gives you a perspective on why we have an appendix I mean medically it's been a mystery for a long time about just why the hell do we have this appendix this is a little vestigial organ maybe vestigial is the wrong word but this little organ uh, at the uh, upper end of our colon um, And but if you think about it as a refugium for your intestinal microbiota um, such that when nature purges you and, you know, nature has a, a mechanism for cleaning out our colon and that's called diarrhea. And so if you eat something bad, you know, and you purge, the appendix can serve, it is hypothesized as a place where microbes can recolonize from. And if you think about the short lifespan of a microbe, whoever gets there first is going to like, you know, repopulate the landscape. And so if you've got beneficial organisms in your appendix to get there before whatever pests and pathogens can arrive, you can refill that terrain in a way where once pests and pathogens get in there, they can't really compete because there, there's so many organisms that are already there. Um, and that was one of the sort of like surprises for me in writing The Hidden Half of Nature. I never expected that writing that book would you know, explain to me why a high fiber diet was important and why, why we had an appendix. <laughs> And it sounds like, um, you know, it's, it's really like in compost, you have the best compost comes from biodiversity in our gut. It's biodiversity. And um, I haven't read your, uh, your book, the, um, sorry, what's the, the last one there? The Growing a Revolution. Growing a Revolution, yeah, bringing our soil back to life. Uh, and that has a bit about how to do agriculture in sort of a more biodiverse way too, isn't it? 
Yeah, exactly. It's it's what I did is I, um, you know, after we had restored fertility to our lot in urban Seattle, um, and we did it by restore bringing organic matter back to the land and feeding the microbes in the soil. Um, we started asking the question of, well, could you do this on farms? Could you do it at scale uh, in, in in large scale agriculture around the world? And I took about six months off from my teaching job and went and visited farms around the world that had already restored uh, their soil, restored life to their land, and looked at what the common elements were. And to make a short story out of it, we, I basically found that there were sort of three simple principles that people in subsistence farms in Africa, coffee plantations in Costa Rica, corn and soybean farms in North America, very, very different scales and types of agriculture – uh, there's three different, three simple principles that the people who had restored the soil really fast had adopted, and they were: don't disturb the soil, so go to no-till farming or minimal till farming. Uh, keep the land covered with growing plants with cover crops um, to about basically um, act as green manure and fertilizer, um, and then plant a diversity of crops um, or a diversity of cover crops. And so, those three things: ditch the plow, cover up the ground, and grow a diversity of things were the recipe for rebuilding soil fertility very fast. What do those three things all do have in common when you think of them as a system of uh, interacting uh, pieces? They promote the, the health and growth of beneficial microorganisms in the soil because you're not disturbing them, you're feeding them, and you're promoting a variety of them, a community of them. Um, and those three simple principles are 180 degrees from what modern conventional agriculture advocates, from intensive tillage, chemical, you know, intensive chemical use instead of the use of green manures and cover crops and growing one or two crops, functional monocultures. Um, so those, the farmers who applied these conservation agriculture principles to cultivate beneficial soil life had done a remarkable job Mm. of taking land from marginal fertility and rebuilding it back in most cases to a more fertile condition than nature had managed to do in the pre-agricultural world. They built their soil carbon back up to above natural rates, natural levels of soil carbon. Um, and I was inspired by what they'd done because I think that they showed that there is a style of agriculture that could be just as productive as modern um, chemical intensive agriculture that need not necessarily be organic. It can work on conventional farms by reducing their input use and it turns out to be more economical because if they're able to grow as much food by spending and spend less on diesel, pesticide, and fertilizer, that's better profitability for the farmer because their income remains the same, but their costs go down. Uh, so I was I was inspired that this this idea of prioritizing soil health is a way to really bring soil back to life and rebuild the fertility of the world's farmlands that have been degraded substantially by modern conventional agriculture. And we maintain high yields through external inputs, through fertilizers and pesticides uh, and a lot of diesel. And it sounds like the um, it actually is beneficial to the triple bottom line. Yes, and no, it is because it has a smaller environmental footprint. It has a better economic profile for the farmer um, and it can maintain our ability to, to feed everybody. And so if you're reducing you know, the offsite nitrogen and phosphorus leakage from farms that cause pollution offsite, that's a good thing. Um, if you're using less insecticide, you can rebuild the biodiversity on farms and something like a quarter of the world's continental landmass is involved in agriculture. The future of biodiversity is tied to the future of agriculture um, in a very simple and direct way. Um, 
And so, yeah, it basically, it can really help with the triple bottom line. I see it as a win, win, win. And you can also park more carbon in the ground. There's a climate win as well. There's a lot of controversy about just how much carbon you could store in the world's farmland soils. And it's my view that the numbers are, you know, probably larger than the minimal estimates and nowhere near the maximum estimates, Mm. but that it's, you know, the same practices that you would adopt to implement those principles of conservation agriculture. They're the same, whether you're trying to improve the fertility of the land or whether you're trying to sequester carbon in the soil, it's a double win. We get both by doing it. So we ought to be promoting these practices um, across the board on conventional farms and organic farms, because if you have an organic farm that involves tillage, that involves the plow, you're burning up soil organic matter. And that dirt book that we mentioned, that you mentioned at the start of the, the interview, looked at how soil degradation under under um, what were de facto organic practices, because they were thousands of years ago before we invented agrochemicals, um, let alone mechanization. Um, Intensive tillage-based farming degraded the soil in society after society around the world in ways that compromised their longevity. Putting those three principles of conservation agriculture together, though, is a way to merge the ancient wisdom of cover crops and crop rotations, because those are not new ideas, right? They, they were traditional in, in farms around the world in, in the pre-modern era, and they were traditional because they worked. Well, we didn't necessarily understand how they worked or why they worked, but we do. They did work. Combining those with no-till and the modern technologies that allow us to to adopt no-till, um, that's really the revolution in terms of building soil health. And there's there's controversy over no-till in terms of the amount of, of herbicide that many farmers use with no-till farming. I went and visited farmers who had moved beyond that and were starting to look at cover crops as ways to manage weeds. They were looking at bringing cattle under their land to eat the cover crops and manage weeds. I uh, interviewed farmers who had been doing a really remarkable job of building alternatives to herbicide use in no-till. And it convinced me that it's possible to actually use either very little or no herbicide in no-till coupled with these other practices, cover crops and diversity. Um, I see it as a real promising way forward. Um, it's uh, it's uh, like you like you said, and I uh, when we talked to Finian, he talked about not actually making people feel bad because oh we're doing this wrong, but saying hey look there's actually a better way. It's you know yeah. it's better for your economy. Uh, it's better for your health. Is if you subscribe to the idea of climate change being human um, driven, then it's you know, it's going to help with that too. It's, it's just good all around. No, it is. It's a real win, win, win. I mean, that's what really motivated me to write growing a revolution and interview some of these farmers who've been doing regenerative practices is I don't see the downside yet. Mm. I don't think there is one. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, I like to view it as the biggest natural infrastructure challenge that humanity faces, um, in terms of rebuilding the fertility of our land. And I'm perfectly satisfied that it's feasible to do because I've met farmers who are doing it. Yeah. Um, and I've read enough academic studies and parsed them to try and figure out where the secret lies. And this combination of three principles and practices, ditching the plow, covering up with cover crops and growing a diversity, uh, is really the recipe. You can add livestock to that. And that's important in grasslands and for grazing lands. Um, and there's different ways of grazing that, um, really help facilitate that. But it's that same thinking of what are the practices that build the, the microbial life in the soil that build the soil carbon. That's the key to really 
regenerating the fertility of the world's farmlands. And, you know, the big point of growing a revolution is that we can do that through intensive agriculture. Mm-hmm. It's not a question of feeding the world versus saving the soil. We can do both. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. You've, you've interviewed all these people. You took that six months to interview people. Um, I'd like to know what their philosophies are. You know, at the end of the conversation, I like to get a little bit philosophical and, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'd like to, I'd, I'd, I'm interested in what their philosophies are. And also in, in parallel to that, um, I know that you've written a bit about the indigenous um, uh, Americans and is there any parallels between what they do? Um, yeah, I mean, if you look back at some of uh, the indigenous agricultural practices in the American Midwest, they were co-planting different species of, um, in terms of uh, you know, squash and legumes and corn all together in ways that sort of uh, match onto the, the diversity and the cover crops part of, um, of conservation agriculture. In terms of basic philosophies of the farmers I visited, um, you know, what they really shared in common was a desire to improve their land, to really sort of rebuild what they saw as fertility that had been lost. And they had lots of different motivations. There were some who were motivated by a very spiritual sense that, um, you know, this world is in our care and we need to take care of creation. There were others who were motivated by, um, you know, recognizing how soil degradation had under really undercut the subsistence economy of their communities in Africa. Um, but the common, the common thread was the desire to really leave the land better off for future generations than they had received it from previous generations. Um, the idea to, to really regenerate um, the very foundation of our agricultural civilization um, was the common thread that they all really held. Um, and having seen enough in terms of soil degradation around the world and, and the problems that it can present and the connections between the health of the land and the health of societies, let alone the health of individuals, um, I sort of share their, their motivation, their interest, their desire in mm-hmm. terms of trying to see the world change course. Um, one of the big takeaways from that, that dirt book that I wrote was that most, not all, but darn near all previous civilizations degraded the land they depended on to grow their food. And this was done to the detriment of, of subsequent generations. If we can turn that around this century and figure out how to make this regenerative style of agriculture much more common, if not the new conventional, um, that would literally alter the arc of history in a way that we need to now that we have an integrated global society we don't have any other planets we know of yet with soil, as we were talking about. Um, we have to get it right this time. There's too many of us on this world to get it wrong because we don't have anywhere else to go at this point. Mm. It's um, uh, good to mull over for the end of the conversation for sure. David, I want to <laughs> thank you for your time. And would you like to share uh, the, well, I guess Growing the Revolution is the, the newest book that you have. And where, where can people get that and where can people reach out to you? 
Yeah, so you know, the, the three books that touch on this are the, the new ones, Growing Our Evolution, Bring Our Soil Back to Life. The one before that that's about microbes mostly is looking at the hidden, the hidden half of nature, the microbial roots of life and health. And the book that started me on this path is Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations that looks back at mostly the history of ancient societies. Uh, those can be found sort of wherever books are sold, uh, you know, your your local independent bookstore or Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Um, anyone, you could order them from any places like that. Uh, if you'd like, if people would like to know more about us or uh, about Ann and I or what we do, we have a website. It's uh, digtogrow.com. So it's www.dig, the number two, and then grow.com. And we're active on Twitter. So if you want to like check out, if we find neat stuff about the microbiome and people or in the soil or regenerative agriculture, we pass that on. Um, and we're at dig to grow again, dig the number two and grow. Um, and uh, we're on Facebook. I think we're Dig to Grow Books, um, and so people can check those out if you're interested. Uh, if you want, people want to contact us, you can reach us through the website. There's an email contact form there, and we we try and get back to everybody. And obviously, encourage people to check out the books, uh, read about this stuff. Um, you know, and I've both been very. Um, impressed with how much we learned by digging into and writing those books. And we're enthused about sharing that knowledge with others it's stuff that we think pretty much everybody ought to know more about. And, uh, the new book growing a revolution was a finalist for the, the pen literary award in, in literary science writing. It's not written for scientists. It's written for normal people. <laughs> um, we're trying to basically try and take these science behind all these ideas and merge it with interviews and history and make it entertaining and make it so that people can really digest it and learn. I've had great response from readers. So encourage people to check it out and Ben very much appreciate your time. It's a fun interview. Yeah. Um, that's great. You know, I really wanted just to thank you for what you're doing. Um, the way that you do communicate science with, with storytelling. I really appreciate that. Uh, and thanks for being on the podcast. No worries. My pleasure. Take care. How cool is that? Can you start to see the direct connections that we have with the soil? Thanks again, David, for chatting with us and sharing your of your knowledge. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to spread this message and show people how life-giving the soil is and how we're all connected to it, give us a rating and review on iTunes and share it with your friends and colleagues. We'll also have the Patreon account up this week, so you can check that out. And if you'd like to partner with us in some way, shape or form, email us. We'd love to connect. I hope you guys are all inspired to live a probiotic life. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life. talk and you say something welcome to this welcome to all the trees in the forest oh all the trees in the forest yeah. and how about the probiotic life and the pro welcome to the probiotic life <laughs> and what's your name
I'm Jay Fitz.